be in the pew back in front of you. It'll be helpful if you have the Bible open as we move along. It's page 914 if you're looking at one of those hardback Bibles here that, that we provide in the, in the pew. Galatians chapter 3, we'll be looking at chapter 10 through 14. And there's a sort of a bare bones outline on the back of the handout. If that's helpful for you to look on, uh, keep an eye on as, as we move along. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Um, there are some decisions in life that are, uh, are both and decisions. So there's both and decisions, and then there's either or decisions. You might already know what I'm talking about, but, but you will in a second. So both and is when you don't have to choose between two different things. So those two things can go together. So I remember when we had our first child, I had never been around children before we had kids ever. I was the youngest one and even my extended family. I had never, I don't think I'd ever held, no, I, I held my sister's kids. I'd certainly never changed a diaper. I'd never held a child that was fussing. Didn't know anything about childcare at all. Didn't really know how I would respond in those situations. And praise the Lord, God builds this thing in us as, as humans where we love our children. And it's usually an easy thing to love our children. So I remember we had Nora, she was our first and love Nora. And then Jude came along. And I remember wondering kind of how is this dynamic going to work? But praise the Lord, it's not that you have to pick. It's not that, okay, I can either love Nora or I can love Jude. No, Jude comes along and then I can love them both. It's both and, right? I don't have to choose between them. Praise God, that's how it works with our kids. But, but some decisions aren't both and decisions. They're either or decisions where you have to pick one or the other. So we moved here from Maine. When we lived in Maine, we would make arrangements to travel back down south and see our family. Well, we had to decide the first decision to be made was, are we going to fly or are we going to drive? Both were kind of horrible options, but they got us there. Praise the Lord for it. But we couldn't do both of those. Our family couldn't fly down south and drive down south at the same time for the same trip. We had to pick. It was either or. Well, in our passage this morning, the Lord is making it clear that it works the same way when it comes to relying on our moral performance for his approval. So we can either do that. We can either think the reason God thinks what he does about me, the reason he is pleased with me or displeased is because of my own performance. We can either think that way or we can get into heaven. But it's an either or is what Paul is saying here. You have to pick one you can't have both. If you rely on your moral performance before the Lord for your standing with the Lord, then you can't get into heaven. Pretty significant that we pay attention to this passage. But, but before we read the passage, let's remember what's been going on in the book of Galatians. So there's these false teachers that are around the churches in Galatia, and they were telling these young believers that those young believers weren't really believers yet. They weren't really part of God's family because they had only trusted in Christ. Now, these false teachers said, you've got to do something else to actually become a member of God's family and have your sins covered. You need to have the male members of your household circumcised. You need to follow some of these particularities in the Old Testament law, and then you'll be justified. Then you'll be given an innocent verdict to cover your sins. So that's what the false teachers were saying. And so far in the book of Galatians, Paul has been at pains to remind these Christians that is not how the gospel works. No, we're made right with the Lord apart from our works through faith alone, through trust alone in Christ alone. That's what justifies us. That's what makes us part of God's family. And it doesn't come by works. It doesn't come by our character at all. It just comes through reaching out to Christ in faith. 
So that's what Paul has been saying. That's the main message of this book. But what he does here is, is he really sort of gets down to the nub of it to make it as clear as he can. And again, to say, in fact, if you're relying on your own moral performance for your standing before the Lord, you won't get into heaven. You won't end up blessed. So with all that understanding, hear the word of the Lord, Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Paul says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, so let's deal with a couple preliminaries that'll help us set up this passage before we kind of move into the outline. So, so what does it mean to be cursed? Because that's a significant word in this passage. We'll be cursed if we rely on our own moral performance, if we rely on the law. So what's that mean? What's cursing mean? In the Bible, it's opposite of blessing. So you, oftentimes you'll see one compared to the other in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament. Listen to Jesus. This is Matthew 25. He's talking about the final judgment that will happen when he returns. And this is what he says about blessing and cursing. Matthew 25, verse 33. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Okay, what is this blessing? Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, a few verses down, Matthew 25, 41, about cursing. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so you can see the dichotomy. Blessing is God's presence in heaven, eternal life. Cursing is, the, is full and final death away from the Lord. That's what cursing is in scripture. Full and final death away from the Lord, away from his presence. That's what this language of blessing and cursing is getting at. Heaven or hell, eternal life or, or eternal judgment. Okay, now, now what does it mean to rely on the works of the law? Because Paul tells us if you rely on those works, then you're under this curse of God's eternal judgment. It's a bad consequence. So how do you know if you're headed toward that judgment? What's it mean to rely on the works of the law? What that means is when it comes to your standing in God's eyes, we already talked about it a little bit, you're relying on your own performance. So it's on you whether you're going to be pleasing to the Lord or not. You're relying on your own character, your own good works. You're thinking God will be pleased enough with those things that he'll be pleased with you. That's the person who's relying on works of the law. Now, now we need to see that relying on good works that's different than simply pursuing good works. And the Bible makes this distinction for us really, really clearly. So as Christians, we're supposed to pursue good works. We're not supposed to rely on good works, but we are supposed to pursue them. Flip a page over to chapter 6, verse 10 of Galatians. And that's where Paul says this. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So God wants us to do good. But see, there is a world of difference between doing good and relying on good. 
Those are two very different things in scripture. The, the Christian is supposed to do good, but we're supposed to rely on Christ, on his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That's what the Christian is supposed to rely on for their relationship with God. And see, it's, it's because we have that relationship established with the Lord that, that then we can pursue good works, but we're not relying on those works. We pursue good works, but we rely on Christ. But, but we should pause and recognize most people don't rely on Christ. You know, the, the vast majority of people in our world do this thing that Paul is telling us not to do. The vast majority of people in the world rely on their own performance before the Lord. In fact, I bet that the majority of your non-Christian coworkers and neighbors and family members, if you talked to them about, okay, why do you think you'll get into heaven? Why do you think the Lord will be pleased with you if they say that they believe in God? The vast majority of people are going to say, oh, because I'm a pretty good person. You know, they think that in the scales, their goodness outweighs their badness. They've done enough good things for the Lord to be pleased with them. But see, what we're going to learn in our passage is that relying on your own performance will never get you into heaven. In fact, it will keep you out of heaven. And Paul's going to tell us why. He gives us four main reasons as we move through this passage. So first, the law requires perfection, and you can't obey it perfectly. It's the first thing we'll see. Second, the Bible makes clear that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ, not by works. Third, salvation by the law is actually the opposite of salvation by faith. Those two things are mutually exclusive. And finally, your only hope is to place faith in Jesus who paid for your law-breaking. So first... First reason none of us can rely on our performance in this life to get into heaven is because the law requires perfection and you can't fulfill it perfectly. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Okay, so for the person that's banking on their own performance to be made right before the Lord, they have to obey the law perfectly. The opposite of, of heaven, again, is cursing. And Paul just told us, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The law requires perfection. If you're going to go that route, if you're going to go the route of trying to rely on your own performance before the Lord, you have to do it perfectly. In other words, the law says you have to have a clean life. And see, our natural human tendency is to think that a clean life must just mean mostly clean or cleaner than that guy or more clean than that gal. But that's not what the Bible teaches. So, so think of it this way. This is something probably most of us have done. If you're preparing chicken and you're cutting raw chicken on the counter, and let's say you can see the space where you have cut the raw chicken and you clean with disinfectant nine out of 10, of that spot. 90% of it you clean. You leave 10%. Is that counter clean? Are you going to let your kids or your spouse or your niece and nephew, your grandkids, are you going to let them hop up at the counter and have a snack at that counter? No, that counter is not clean. It's only clean if it's completely clean. And see, the Bible teaches that in terms of obeying God's law, your life is only clean if it's completely clean. Nothing there at all. No sin, no disobedience. Look at the second half of verse 10. Paul says, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
So if you're going to rely on the law, then you have to do everything that's in the law. Now, now, if you're not too familiar with the Bible, you might wonder what kinds of things God law, God's law tells us to do. Well, there's tons of things, right? But we know from, uh, from Jewish scholars that, that in the Old Testament, they would say there's at least over 600 commands in the Old Testament alone. So lots of different things that the law tells us to do. But, but the good news is Paul sums up all of these laws. At least he sums it up with the way we're supposed to interact with other people. Look over at chapter 5, verse 14. And that's where Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You probably remember, but, but Jesus covers the category of love for God, too. That's what we saw in our congregational reading from Matthew chapter 22. So to sum up, to obey the law is to always love other people perfectly and to always love God perfectly. That's what it is to obey the law. So no jealousy ever. No unrighteous anger. No, no dissatisfaction with your situation in life. Not even for a moment. No lust. No putting your needs before the needs of your church. No, no dissatisfaction. No deceitfulness. So if someone's relying on their own good works to get into heaven, they need to have a life like that completely free from all of those sins we just just listed and and all other sins they can't have committed even one of those sins even once that's what it takes if you're going to go the route of the law in order to be made right in god's eyes you have to obey it perfectly paul says the same thing with the example of circumcision over in chapter 5 verse 3 and there he says i testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And this isn't something the Holy Spirit only tells us in Galatians. Listen to James chapter 2, verse 10. It says the same thing. James says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of all of it. So he says the same thing. And this isn't a caricature of God's law. It's not like in the Old Testament it's painted in a much different light. And then Paul and James come along and say, no, the law says you have to obey it perfectly. No, this is what the law says too. In fact, Paul's got a quote from God's law here in the book of Deuteronomy. It's, it's the first of four quotations. He quotes the Old Testament here four times in these few verses. And he starts here in verse 10 by quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26. And here's what that passage says. Deuteronomy 27, 26, God says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And the Lord doesn't mean, okay, the, the one who does them has to do some of them. No, he's talking about the whole thing. You have to do the whole law, Deuteronomy 27 says. You have to obey all the words of this law. And a chapter later in Deuteronomy 28, we're told what will happen if somebody doesn't obey the law. This is what the law says will happen if somebody doesn't obey it all. Deuteronomy 28, 20. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Okay, so that cursing will come on the one who doesn't do all things written in the book of the law. And see, it's not even Deuteronomy where that shows up for the first time. Just think about Adam and Eve in the garden. How many sins did it take? for God to send them out of the garden, for him to curse them. It took one sin. From the beginning of the Bible, we have seen this truth 
that if it's on our shoulders, if it's up to our moral capabilities, we only have to break one law before we're, before we're done, before we're put out, before we're considered cursed. If you're relying on the law, you have to obey it perfectly. Now, now that all is in place, but here's why this isn't just an academic exercise for us this morning. And it's because we're all sinners. We are lawbreakers. So this is relevant. It's relevant for all of us. All of us have broken God's law. Let's hear some verses that make this abundantly clear. And this is the kind of category. So this, this thing that the Bible teaches that all humans are sinners, it's helpful to know some Bible verses that teach that. Not that you have to remember them, praise the Lord. Our children can remember all sorts of things. You get older, it's harder to remember things. But praise the Lord, we have pens and paper, right? So you can write verses down. That's what I do. So, for example, the first passage I'm going to read is 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, about how we're all sinners. My brain can remember that verse. The rest of these verses, I don't remember where all these are. And I'm a pastor. Hopefully that's okay. So you know what I do? I write down these other references. They're in 1 John chapter 1. So I can find 1 John 1, 8. Oh, and then I've got these other three or four listed. And that's helpful to know where scripture's teaching is about this. So let me rattle these off. Just to build this case, scripture is really clear. Every human is a sinner. First John chapter one, verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is James chapter three, verse two. James three, two. For we all stumble in many ways. First Kings chapter eight, verse 46. For there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 143, verse 2. For no one living is righteous before the Lord. Finally, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. How often do you go to Ecclesiastes? Probably not that often. Here it is, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So the Bible's really, really clear on this point. Every human is a sinner. So we can, we can pull it all together. If, if to rely on the law for salvation, you've got to obey it perfectly. And if there's only cursing that's waiting for us, if we don't obey it perfectly, and if we're all people who have disobeyed, then we've got a big problem. And that's, that's the exact teaching of our passage, verse 10. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So that's a problem for us. So, so just for a minute, now we understand what the answer is to this, and Paul's going to get into that. The answer is Christ. We're trusting in Christ. But just for a minute, feel the hopelessness of that situation, because it's good for us as Christians to remember how hopeless that situation is. If, if your salvation were on your own shoulders, you'd have to abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We'd probably be walking around all day just repeating that phrase, all things, all things. You have to do all of it perfectly. We, we wouldn't last 10 minutes. Our situation would be hopeless. So, so why can't you rely on performance to get into heaven? Because the law requires perfection and you can't obey it perfectly. So the question for you, the question for me is, are you relying on works of the law? The way Paul says not to do, 
But are you doing that? Are you relying on works of the law? When it, when it comes to your standing in God's eyes, are you counting on your own character and good deeds? In particular, think about it this way. Do you ever get proud of yourself for your character and good deeds? Is, is it easy to, to begin to think, you know what, I do deserve some praise. I am pretty good in this particular area. You know, I, I have done well here. That, that kind of thinking, that's like poison for us. There's this great line. Nick Saban is a football coach. He coaches Alabama. They're pretty good at football. He's a pretty good coach. He has this great line where when the press is talking up his team, when they're talking about how good Alabama is, he came up with this thing years ago where he said, for my players, that kind of talk is rat poison. And he's just stuck with that illustration throughout. His point is, if my players listen to you guys, then, then they're not going to perform well because they're going to get puffed up. They're going to think that they don't need to prepare. They're going to walk out on the field like we're just going to roll over these guys. And that's not a recipe for winning a college football game. So Saban is always talking to his players about how that kind of talk is poison. Well, for the Christian, that kind of talk is poison. When we start thinking to ourselves, I am pretty good. You know, I'm certainly better than this other person. I have come far along in my Christian walk and and that's probably because, I mean, I, I deserve some praise for that. Well, that's, that's poison. That kind of thought will, will lead us to think maybe we're good enough on our own to achieve a good standing in God's eyes. But see, the, the most important thought you can have each day when you wake up is the thought where you say, I have to have Jesus for every moment of this day. That's the thought we want to wake up with. I have to have Jesus for every moment of this day because if I don't have Jesus, I will fail. It's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The Beatitudes, you remember this one? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who realize I'm spiritually poor. I'm destitute. Nothing good in me. Or like David says in Psalm 86, verse 1, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. So is that your posture before the Lord? and before others, where you're a spiritual beggar, you realize there's nothing good in you. You know you can't perform your way into God's approval because you're a sinner. That's the kind of thinking that we want to cultivate as Christians. We want to pray for that, remind ourselves of that. So the law requires perfection. You can't obey it perfectly. But the second reason here, to not rely on your performance to get into heaven, the Bible makes it clear that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ. Verse 11. Now, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, remember what that word justified means? It's courtroom language. That's what a judge would pronounce over a defendant, that they're either condemned, they're guilty, or they're justified, meaning they get to leave the courtroom. There's no punishment. I'm declaring this person innocent. So, so when a sinner is justified by God, that's God announcing that this sinner is forgiven of all of their sins and is now counted righteous, is now counted innocent in God's eyes. Look again at verse 11. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so the way one gets this status of righteous, Paul tells us here, is not by obeying the law. In other words, it's not by our performance in this life. No, it's through faith. He says, the righteous shall live, shall be given life. 
The righteous shall live by faith. And this is the second Old Testament passage Paul quotes for us. It was our call to worship. It's Habakkuk chapter two. Listen to what we're told in the prophet Habakkuk. We'll start a little bit earlier than Paul does. We'll start in chapter two, verse two of Habakkuk. And the Lord answered me, talking to the prophet, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the day. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so here's what's happening in the book of Habakkuk. You may not have read it in a while. So Habakkuk is crying out to God. There's people in Israel, people in God's visible people that are disobeying the Lord. They're not interested in the Lord. They don't love the Lord. And Habakkuk's saying, why are you letting this go on? Why don't you judge your enemies among Israel? God's answer to Habakkuk is, yeah, I am going to judge them and all of Israel. I'm going to raise up this other nation, the Chaldeans. They're going to come and they're going to decimate you guys, which isn't the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. If you read that letter, he's, he's pretty confused and, and displeased with that. But then the Lord says, but then I'm going to punish the Chaldeans as well. It's a thing God oftentimes does in scripture. He judges his people with an, with an enemy nation, and then he judges that enemy nation, right? But he sort of boils things down in Habakkuk, and he, he draws this dividing line where God makes it really clear what separates his true people from his enemies. He boils it down, and this is what he says about that. It's Habakkuk 2.4, the verse that Paul quotes in our passage. He's talking about his enemy first. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So God can sum up how we know who's his enemy and who's his friend by how they think about their standing in his eyes. His enemies are the ones who are puffed up. They think they're good on their own. They don't think they need the Lord. They think they can achieve righteousness. They're puffed up. Like we saw a minute ago, they think they're obeying the law, but they don't do it perfectly. And, and that means they're really disobeying the whole thing. Those are God's enemies. Now, what's he say about his people? It's what Paul says in verse 11 of our passage. The righteous, God's people, the righteous shall live by faith. God's people are the ones who realize they will never have enough good works. They'll never have a good enough character to be righteous in God's eyes. They realize what they need to do instead of looking inside themselves is to reach out for God, reach out to God for salvation. They can't do it, so they have to reach out to him to do it for them. The, the life of salvation that we need is only found in the Lord, and that's exactly what faith is. Faith is just reaching out to Christ, taking a hold of Jesus, turning away from our own efforts, trusting him for his righteousness. And, and that's why it's, it's really important to understand Faith is not a good work. So in scripture, faith is always set against good works. Faith's not a work. It's, it's reaching out to the Lord. Listen to the way one author says it. This is J.C. Ryle. He was an author and a pastor at the end of the 19th century. This is the way he says it. He says, true faith has nothing whatsoever of merit about it. And in the highest sense, it can't be called a work is what it is. It is but a laying hold of a Savior's hand leaning on a husband's arm, receiving a physician's medicine. It brings with it nothing to Christ, but a sinful man's soul. 
It gives nothing, contributes nothing, pays nothing, performs nothing. It only receives, takes, accepts, grasps, and embraces the glorious gift of justification which Christ bestows. Isn't that good? That's what faith is. Faith brings nothing to Jesus. It just comes with an open hand to take hold of Christ. And this isn't a lesson that started with the prophets in the Old Testament. No, we've already seen in Galatians, Paul points out that Abraham was justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what one, uh, one CGG class was talking about this morning. The gospel as it was presented to Abraham, he was justified by faith apart from works. It's exactly what Paul told us back in chapter 2, verse 16. Look there. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Or again, verse 11 in our passage, the righteous shall live by faith. So the life that we need, the salvation that, that will culminate in heaven, the law can never provide us with that life. Now, for sinners, that only comes through faith in Christ. Now, as members of Cornerstone Baptist Church, I bet we all know with our heads that this is true. And I trust that we all believe with our hearts that this is true. That's what Christians do. We believe the gospel. But, but what we want to think about for just a second is if our lives fit with what we believe about justification by faith alone. So do you live your life like justification comes by way of faith alone? Or do you sometimes live your life like your justification comes in part from your own performance in this life, your own character, your own good work? So, so think about a couple of questions. Here's the first one. Do you ever find yourself really concerned with what other sinners think about you? Probably. I think everybody in this room does. Do you ever find yourself really concerned with what other sinners think about you? Now, now there's a way in which that can be good. We all understand that. We need fellow Christians to point out sin to us. So in that way, yeah, it's really significant that we're listening to the believers around us that are, that are pointing us toward Christ, helping us to pursue holiness. But here's the thing. Think about a situation where you know you have not sinned before the Lord, but maybe somebody else thinks you have. Do you care about what they think about you in that situation? Or maybe if it's not even something moral, let's say it's intellectual. So you send a text message to somebody and it's got a misspelling in it. Is your instant thought, ooh, I got to correct that. This person, I need them to know that I'm smarter than this text message looks like. Now, when, when we try to defend ourselves from that sort of silly way all the way up to bigger things, why is it that we do that? Well, I think it's because we want our character to be justified in their eyes. We want self-justification. We want them to think that we're good. But see, that's not the gospel, right? In fact, the sin that that particular person thinks they see in you, they don't even know the half of it. That's the truth. So when you're trying to justify yourself to that person, that little sin that they saw they, they, they only see a small bit about how sinful and inadequate you are, right? They only see a little bit of how sinful and inadequate I am. We're way worse than that person knows. Verse 11, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. God has justified you. If you're a Christian, God has already pronounced you as innocent. You're not condemned 
because God counts Jesus's righteousness toward you. In the words of Romans 8, 34, if God has justified you, who can condemn you? Listen, Jesus had to go to the cross to pay for your sins. Your sins are far worse than anybody else knows. And yet you've been justified from all of them. You don't have to worry about self-justification, which is a mirage anyway. We can't justify ourselves. No, you, you have Christ justification. So the person that might think less of you, they don't even know the half of it. You're worse than they know. But the significant thing is all of those sins have been paid for. So you don't have to worry about self-justification. You have Christ justification. Now, now think about a, a, a second question here. Do, do you find yourself, if you haven't performed well, do you find yourself thinking that maybe the Lord is less pleased with you? Maybe you have a, less of a standing in his eyes. So do, do you ever act like your actions can increase or decrease your justification? Because we, we know that that's not the case. But do you ever act like they can? So, so maybe after you've sinned in some particularly grievous way or a redundant way. So you sin against your kids maybe or a coworker or a family member in a way you've done a hundred times before. Do you ever find yourself waiting a little bit before you pray to the Lord? Because you feel like you can't come to him right away. Maybe you need to leave a, a little bit of time. Almost like you, you can't go to him right away because you, you seem less in his eyes. When we do that, that's, that's acting like our standing in God's eyes is dependent on our works. But again, what's our passage tell us? Verse 11. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Listen to what one author, this guy Sinclair Ferguson, we've used some of his stuff in CGG before. This is what he says about this. He says, how easily we fall into the trap of assuming that we remain justified only so long as there are grounds in our character for that justification. But Paul's teaching is that nothing we do ever contributes to our justification. We differ in the extent to which we allow his spirit to make us like Christ, and it is possible, therefore, to be more or less Christ-like, but it's not possible to be more or less justified. Isn't that good? It's not possible to be more or less justified, not as a Christian, you're as justified in God's eyes on your best day as you are on your worst day. You remain justified. That's because the Bible makes clear salvation comes, justification comes by faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and as if Paul hasn't made it clear enough, he goes on to make sure we know that salvation by the law necessarily pushes out faith. So they're mutually exclusive. You can't have both of them together. One pushes out the other. And this is the third reason our performance in this life can't get us into heaven. Salvation by the law is the opposite of salvation by faith. We, we've probably all gotten locked out of our house before or our car. It's pretty frustrating, right? When, when that happens, especially if it's going to be a while before somebody can come and let you in. What Paul tells us here is if somebody's relying on the law to save them, they have locked themselves out of the one thing that can actually save them, which is faith in Christ. Verse 12. He says, but the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So what he's saying is that, that the law and faith are two different and opposite things. So you can have reliance on Christ, which the Bible calls faith, or you can have reliance on the law, 
but, but you can't have both. You have to choose one. And, and to prove to us this is the case, Paul goes to the Old Testament for a third time in verse 12. He goes to Leviticus, which was our Old Testament reading this morning. Here's what Leviticus 18.5 says. It says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So in the middle of the Old Testament law, Israel was told the way that this law would bring them life. You'll be able to live by them, live by the law, but only if you do them. That's what Paul says in verse 12. He's quoting it. He says, but the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Just like we saw earlier, obedience to God's law can only save if you perform the law perfectly, which again, no sinner can do. Now, now you might be wondering why God gave his people his law then. If he knew it couldn't provide life, if he knew it couldn't save them, why did he give it to them? And that's actually what we're going to see Paul address in our next passage in Galatians. Basically, the law was just to prepare people for Jesus. That's what the main purpose of the law was. But now that Christ has come, that, that prep work is done. And Paul understands if somebody goes back to the law, it's going to push out faith. It's the opposite of, of faith. And, and we want to be sure that we get this right. Sometimes it's easy to think that, that the answer to ethical decay in our society is just to point to God's law. We hear people talk like that sometimes. Man, if we, if we only taught the Ten Commandments in school, if we were only pointing our society to God's law, to what it looks like to live a good life, that's the remedy. That's the thing that, that would save our country, right? If, if we could only point to that Judeo-Christian ethic. And we don't want to get this wrong. God, God's law is required for any society to act ethically, to be a good and just society, but God's law doesn't save people. In fact, to teach people that God will be pleased with them if they are merely obeying the Ten Commandments is to rob them of the thing that can actually save them, which is connection to Jesus through faith in him. So, so in conversations about the moral decline in our country, Let's make it clear to people, the biggest problem is that people need to have their sins paid for, and they need to be recreated in the gospel. That's the biggest problem, and, and that doesn't come by moral instruction. That comes to realizing that, that sinners don't have the capability to be moral enough for God. They need Jesus to pay for their sins. Verse 12, but the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. But, but here's the rub. We're all born into this world as those who are trying to be saved by our own performance. So to, to use Paul's language here, we all come into this world under the curse of the law. We're not born into the world neutral. No, we're, we're born as characters who, uh, creatures who transgress his law. We disobey the Lord. The word redemption, we're going to see that in verse 13. That's a, that's a word from the marketplace of Paul's day. It means to purchase. Or oftentimes it was used of slaves. It's if somebody purchases your freedom and, and releases you. What Paul is saying is we can be purchased out from under this curse. We can be freed from it and saved. How does that happen? He explains in our final two verses. Verse 13, start there. Christ redeemed us, purchased us out. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
As our final point this morning, your, your only hope is to place faith in Jesus who paid for your law breaking. That's our only hope. And it makes sense if we think about it. How does a guilty party finally gain freedom from the penalty of their conviction? Well, they have to pay the price. So they get convicted of something. There's a penalty that's given by a judge. Once they fulfill that penalty, then they're, they're free. Once they've undergone the punishment, then they're released. They've paid for their crime. Okay, well, we're all sinners. We're all criminals before God. Somebody has to pay for that crime. That's the picture we're given in these verses with, with that word cursing. The rightful penalty for breaking our, our holy good creator's law is, is we deserve full and final death away from his presence. We deserve this cursing. Paul gives us a, a great picture of cursing from the Old Testament. The fourth passage he quotes for us, Deuteronomy 21. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Let's hear the, the verse in fuller context of Deuteronomy 21. This is a few verses earlier. This is Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. It's a law about punishment for criminals. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So in Old Testament Israel, if somebody committed a capital crime and they were executed, oftentimes the people would put that dead body up on a cross, up on a wooden stake. And the reason they did it was to remind the people to be afraid of being cursed. It was to show people this is what it looks like to be cursed. This is what it looks like to disobey the Lord in these serious ways and then to meet this end that rightfully comes on somebody who's executed because of their sins. The main message was sin leads to cursing. And that dead body was considered so defiled that even though they saw that message was helpful, they wouldn't leave that body up for long. They would leave it up just for a little bit, not even overnight. And then they take it down and they would bury that body because that sinner was so cursed in God's eyes that they didn't want to be anywhere close to the body. They wanted to bury it. That, that's the kind of cursing that sinners deserve for rebelling against God and breaking his commands. It's for us to be like that sinner, hung up there, shameful, cursed because of our sin. Now, of course, the question for you, the question for me is, do you see yourself this way? So do you see yourself as somebody who on your own deserves that kind of conclusion to your life? That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve, to have to forfeit our lives and then to be hung up in shame for everybody to see this is what it looks like for somebody to be cursed because they have sinned against the Lord. So do you see yourself as deserving that? Do you see yourself for as bad as you are? We should be like David, who in Psalm 51.3 says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David was always reminding himself, I'm a sinner. Or we should be like Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15. He considered himself to be the foremost of sinners. As Christians, that's, that's what we want to see ourselves as. That's what we deserve, this cursing, being hung up on a stake like that. But just as important, we realize quickly that there's a remedy. There's a way to get out from under that cursing because of our disobedience. 
And that's why we have hope. Someone paid the penalty on our behalf. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus hung on that stake in our place. Listen to Acts 5, or Acts 5 verse 30. It characterizes it the same way. Acts 5, verse 30, you killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. That's the imagery here. And this is incredible. This act in the Old Testament of hanging executed criminals on wood to shame them, to show everybody how bad they were, that act was always pointing ahead to the cross where Christ would hang on that stake. He would hang on that tree for us. And the reason he hung on it is so we don't have to. In the words of verse 13, he became a curse for us. What that means is for you as a Christian, when Jesus hung on the cross, he was taking your guilt on his shoulders because he never did anything wrong. Hebrews 7.26 says Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. So he never did anything wrong. There was no reason in himself for him to be hung on that tree, but but he did hang on the cross as one cursed by God. And he did it because he was acting like he had committed all the sins that you had committed as a Christian. That's why he hung there. And that's an incredible thing. You know, you, you can imagine how ashamed you would be if every sin you ever committed, you were punished for it publicly and shamed for it publicly as the one who had committed these sins in front of everybody. That's what happened to Jesus, only they weren't his sins. They were our sins. He, he took the shame and curse of the cross to pay for your jealousy yesterday. Isn't that wild? That's why he hung on the cross, is because you were jealous yesterday or unrighteously angry this past week, or because you feared man more than the Lord over the course of this past month. So we... You deserve to be cursed by God for those sins, but Jesus was cursed instead of you. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And for us, that is good news. I don't know if you ever watch documentaries that are uh, centered around court cases and legal things, or maybe certain shows on on the TV that go through these, these events. But when you're watching something like that and you're waiting for a verdict to be read, in the courtroom, and you're just watching it. You have no skin in the game. Usually your heart beats fast because we're putting ourselves in the shoes of that defendant who's about to find out what the rest of their life is going to look like. Sometimes finding out if they're going to forfeit their life or certainly maybe be locked up for all of life or whether they're instantly going to get to walk out of the courtroom. Isn't that wild? You, you might know this, but the judge, if the guy or gal gets, gets declared not guilty, the next thing the judge says is, bailiff, will you take the handcuffs off of him or her? And they just walk out of the courtroom. They can go do whatever they want to do at that point. That's a crazy thing, that, that decision that's hanging there in the balance. Well, see, that's us as Christians. That verdict of not guilty has been read over all of us. That verdict that'll happen at the end of the world has been brought into the present because of our faith in Christ and the verdict is not guilty. That's a kind of elation that we should have is that we've been freed. 
Now, for those of us who are Christians, look at what Christ's work on the cross has gained us as we close. Verse 13 again, into verse 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that, this is what we get, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Jesus was cursed on our behalf so we could be blessed. He was judged on the cross for our sins so we could gain heaven. So you see the decision here, we can either rely on our own performance or we can get into heaven. The 16th century German pastor, Martin Luther, he says it this way, it's great. He says, trying to be justified by the law is like counting money out of an empty wallet or eating out of an empty dish. Now, praise God that, that we have all the justification we need, not inside of ourselves, it's outside of ourselves through faith alone in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the good news of the gospel. We're thankful, Father, that, that we have to rely on ourselves and our abilities in no way, in no way to have your pleasure, to have the innocent verdict read over us, to, to, to be guaranteed heaven. All of those things come not from anything inside of us, but because of Christ. We're so thankful that you have held him out to us and that we've been able to take hold of him, be united to him through faith alone, in him alone. Father, please work in us individually, but also corporately as a church to be characterized as people who, who look for our justification outside of ourselves in you. Father, who aren't interested in self-justification any longer because we know we have all we need in the cross of Christ. Take a moment to, to pray individually and silently that the Spirit would press these truths in on your heart. Take a moment to do that now.